I think all of us on social media know that patients talk about their conditions. And if you're recruiting a clinical trial, social media can be a fantastic way to find patients and recruit them into your clinical trials. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineo Health Consulting. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Snodgrass and Michael Perlman from our digital and social strategy group here at Cineo's Health. We'll be talking about content that clicks, effective social marketing for clinical trial recruitment. Content that clicks next on the Cineo's Health Podcast. Matthew Snodgrass and Michael Perlman, welcome to the Cineo's Health Podcast. Thank you for having us. This is Matt Snodgrass. I can honestly say, long time, first time, I've subscribed to the podcast for a while and really happy to be a guest for the first time. Thank you for having us. Hello, this is Michael Perlman. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be speaking with you today. Uh, We did really exciting research that was very insightful and looking forward to jumping right into it. Very good. So you both work for the Digital and Social Strategy Group here at Cineos Health. What is digital and social strategy group having anything to do with clinical trials? I'm used to digital and social strategy on the commercial side of the business, not so much for the clinical trial side. What are you guys doing? Yes, it's a great question. So when we thought about patients and what they're doing online, we saw a strong relationship between the actions taken on social media relating to treatment options, and we saw an opportunity to leverage clinical trial recruitment as a window into patient action and to really drive patient engagement activities similar to the way we do on the commercial side of the business. So at the end of the day, we're always just communicating with patients, whatever the conversion action may be. And in clinical trial recruitment, we take the same cues and messaging and imagery to lead to a specific action. And when it comes to clinical trial recruitment, it's about presenting a clinical trial as an option for patients that are seeking options and driving them towards transparent, important information about a study that they can use to determine if they want to participate. So it's interesting when we talk about how patients are treated and we think about different disease states, clinical trials are not the first line of therapy for most patients. It's usually the last line of therapy, but it is actually referenced in guidelines, especially in oncology or other rare diseases where you try treatment number one, then treatment number two, and then third treatment might be clinical trial, or depending on the status of your illness and the kind of cancer that you have, you might be directed first to a clinical trial. How does this work? How does digital media, and you're basically on the front lines of getting a patient in, how do those two things interact? What we found is that patients are flocking to the digital channels at a much higher rate over the last few years to consume health information, to interact with other patients, to share experiences living with the same condition. And coincidentally, friends, family members are also doing the same thing on behalf of their loved ones. So ultimately, you know, these digital platforms are an excellent place to really understand patients, how they manage their conditions, the daily struggles, the impact on daily living activities. And sure, in oncology and rare disease, there's first line, second line treatments. But in a lot of of these conditions, there's really no effective treatment out there. And even in rare disease and oncology, these patients are going online to learn about what's happening in the clinical space, 
they're looking to connect with other patients, whether because they're feeling isolated because of their condition or just because they're more interested in learning different perspectives. So we think there's a high amount of correlation between the activities needed to fulfill a clinical trials enrollment and the unmet needs of patients that are moving to online platforms to learn about these opportunities. If I'm reading it correctly, that's where the patients are. Yes. And every day, new people are diagnosed with the condition. And we found that just an incredibly high rate of individuals, after they take the advice of their physicians, they're jumping online, they're doing their own research, and really taking a proactive role in their own journey managing a condition. It seems like that's been one of the limiting factors. If I'm to dial back to pre-social media. The limiting factor, if you're trying to enroll a clinical trial is where are the patients? How do you talk to them? And that wasn't, it sounds like, not really possible 20 years ago where potentially you talk to their doctors, but to reach out to patients and to let them know about a clinical trial, how would you even know who they were? And they're identifying themselves on social media. Is that, am I reading the, the world correctly? That's absolutely right. With social media, I think of it as two ways of gleaning that information on the patient population. One is you now have, in many cases, a public window into the conversation that they're having in social media, sometimes closed when it comes to Facebook groups or other closed groups that like an advocacy organization may run. But for a large part, you're able to glean a lot of the, the motivations, the frustrations, the challenges, and the lexicon that the audience is using publicly in social media as they discuss this. So that's also now the same means of reaching these patients with social media advertising. So you've done a survey. Whom did you survey? In this research, we looked at uh, two distinct uh, groups of patients, migraine patients and epilepsy patients. These are two conditions that just have a large amount of late-stage trials going on and large prevalence globally. We had about 432 patients participate in this survey because we wanted the results to be statistically significant. We asked questions up front relating to demographic characteristics, questions about their health condition and the impact it has on their quality of life. And then we explored areas like clinical trial awareness. We wanted to gauge how aware they were about clinical trials, have they seen advertising on social media, and we then explored their trust in various channels of information. After we asked all these questions, we then, in a section, started showing mock promotional ads to identify their preferences on imagery and messaging. And we wanted to look at this through a few different lenses. One way was exploring responses by condition. We wanted to understand the distinction of migraine and epilepsy patients as it manifests to patient emotions and preferences. We also looked at the results by intent to join a clinical trial. Uh, we found that individuals indicating that their condition uh, had a high negative impact on their quality of life were much more active on social media and much more likely to join a clinical trial. The last way we looked at the data is through the impact that condition has on their quality of life. It identified motivations, issues, unmet needs that all came into play when it came to their preference for digital ad A versus digital ad B. So I guess I'm taking away from this, just from the, the very beginning, if you have a condition that's affecting you more, 
you're more, A, engaged on social media, so we can find you as a patient and message to you, and B, you're more responsive to the messages. Am I understanding that correctly? That is absolutely right. And in fact, that was one of the questions we posed specifically. As Michael said, as we separated the two groups into those with a low intent to enroll in a clinical trial versus those with a high intent to enroll in a clinical trial, one of the things that brought them into one or the other group was the effect that their condition had on their quality of life. As you just stated, if it has a high impact on their quality of life, meaning it negatively affects their quality of life, they are more likely to be on social media, they are more likely to be researching on the internet in general, and they are more prone to have intention to join a clinical trial. But do they trust it? That's the other thing that you brought up. A trust in social media, I think, is at a low, I want to say. At least that's perception in the media is that you don't trust your data to be held properly in social media. And you don't trust uh, social media necessarily to tell you the truth. And you don't trust social media necessarily to be on your side. Am I right that this is a big trust issue or is this not so much a big trust issue with these patients? Where are we? Yes, yeah, absolutely it is. In general, with the public, and I'd say specifically with the patients, you know, we're just on the heels of a public release of a scandal that Google faced with Google Plus users' information being uh, accessed through their API. Facebook, a couple weeks earlier, had gone through something similar with over 55 million users having their information exposed through a bug. And then months prior, the fallout from the Cambridge Analytica scandal, where large amounts of personal information were made available to others. So we actually took the Cambridge Analytica scandal and worked that into the study specifically asking if A, they had known about it, and B, what effect did that have on their trust of social media in general and Facebook specifically. What we found was that those with uh, low intent to enroll, it eroded their trust in the platform a little more than those with a high intent to enroll. And digging in a little deeper, what we found was despite the fact that that trust was eroded, specifically in Facebook, it didn't remove their need to use Facebook. As Michael said earlier, they use this as a means of communicating with others. They use this as a means of venting. They use this as a means of research. So Yes, their their trust was eroded, and we, we empirically found that in the survey findings, but their use of it and their, their intent to use the social media platforms still remained high. So it sounds like we've done a selection event. We selected for those patients who do still have trust in the social media platforms that they're using, and they're motivated to do something about their condition anyway. So even if they had less trust, it didn't matter. They still want to engage. Yes, that's correct. Well, I'm convinced. It sounds like I would be using social media to enroll every trial. What am I missing? Or is this just the way that trials will be enrolled? So social media is a valuable tool when it comes to patient recruitment. However, each therapeutic area is unique. Every patient group is unique. They have different needs. They have different issues and challenges. Even within the same condition, there's people that are affected by a condition mildly and then severely, and and they have very different impacts on the way they manage their conditions. So ultimately, social media should always be considered as a patient recruitment tool as part of an overall recruitment strategy for a program. And that's what we've consistently seen, and and that's why we're doing the work that we're doing. I'm going to push there because at one time, you think about balance if you're a football team balance between the running game and the passing game. But when the West Coast offense came, the more they passed, the more yards they got per pass. It was actually the right play to keep putting more and more of your eggs in one basket. You also see this sometimes in in companies or stocks where ones that are 
very extreme in what they do, do one thing extremely well, that that's more valuable than balancing your approach. I'm now kind of wondering if the money ball answer for clinical trial recruitment is to put most of your eggs in this basket. Talk me off this ledge. Sure. Yeah. As Michael indicated, what we're really saying is is to use it as part of your current marketing mix, really as a supplement. It's the deepest dive into patient targeting and, and content and creative variation that you can get into, arguably. Also, the ones we surveyed also had that proclivity to using the internet and social media in general. So we wouldn't want to do this at the negatively impacting those who we were never going to reach through social media simply because they aren't on social media. As I talked about the targeting, you know, you think about the level of information that you divulge on Facebook about yourself is very deep. The pages that you like, the content that you like and have frowny faces on and pictures of your kids and, and where you've been, where you're going, where you work, all of that information is really just Facebook pulling that into their marketing engine that now marketers can take advantage of. So the amount of information that you divulge as a user, you can now take advantage of as a marketer. In terms of the content variability, you know, one might think in, even in the digital advertising world with banner ads, you'll come up with two, three, four, five different forms of creative variation for what's called A-B testing or A-V variable testing to see which ad is performing better, either by its imagery or a headline or a description. And then the algorithm then says, all right, whichever one happens to be performing better, I'm going to allocate more dollars and more impressions to that one because the algorithm is telling me that it is outright performing better. Well, on social media, we're using tools now that we can add in layers of variability to things like if we were to say we would have four variations of imagery creative and five variations of headlines and five variations of descriptions. Well, they become compounding mathematically so that we can get into the dozens, if not hundreds of creative variations that happen in social media, all for the same amount of work that goes into creating them in other media. Earlier this week, I was with a client. We discussed social media targeting for commercial purposes. In this case, it was targeting whether or not we could reach out to payer P&T committees and message to them with unbranded messaging. And immediately the force field went up, I think, among the clients in the room where they were concerned that they would be running into legal issues or other issues that might be around the regulatory side. It has to be a problem. I know that our clients are worried about it, and that might be just a lack of familiarity with it. This isn't a way that maybe they've done it before. Can you either allay the fears there or appropriately warn us that social media might be legally dangerous? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We run across this a lot with health and pharma marketing on social in general. There are obviously guidelines and draft guidance that has come from FDA over the, over the years that speaks to that in terms of broadly what you can do and what you can do. At its heart, it follows the same guidelines that have been in existence for years. It's just some of the specificity and technicalities have been refined as it relates to social media or other forms of short form messaging where you're not always able to get some of the uh, either fair balance or other legal statements into the, the medium as presented as well. But we are definitely cognizant of that. We work around those and it goes through kind of two passes of review in our head. One is we look at current FDA guidance in terms of what they would permit as uh, being allowed. But the, the second one, and arguably more difficult one to do, is with the client themselves. So 
We are often with the medical, legal, and regulatory review committees, which can vary in their temperament, their tolerance, their appetite for pushing the envelope and when it comes to things like this. Now, you talk about as many different pharmaceutical clients and biotech clients that are out there, each having multiple regulatory teams on their staff. We get that many different opinions when it comes to what will be approved and what will not. But what I found is over the years when it comes to those teams, when they don't know, the answer will be no. I've kind of adopted (laughs) that as a blanket statement. So along with the presentation of a concept review or presentation of a new creative execution has to come some degree of education because what they are good at is regulatory knowledge, medical knowledge, and legal knowledge. Social media and social marketing is not their primary concern, is not their primary area of knowledge. So without that level of education to tell them exactly what this is, what are the ramifications? What are the technical implications of when someone clicks on something? What does it look like on mobile? That helps them along the way in, in getting that approval through. The flip side of that is that whatever the maximum saturation is for clinical trial recruitment online, if we have many manufacturers that are gun shy, then this is the place to be if what you're looking for is to be one of the few people out there. Am I reading it correctly that it's a free range right now because there are just very few people out there that are, are recruiting online? You're partly right. I uh, This is Mike. I would argue that the online clinical trial recruitment space is very competitive. Most studies these days are, are branded. They have branded social media presences where you know patients can follow these studies and learn more about them. And just to sort of piggyback off of what Matt was speaking to, I've seen extensively that sponsors being very sensitive and sort of slowly adopting the utilization of social media advertising when it comes to filling their studies. Using Facebook as an example, in order to advertise on Facebook, you need to establish a page first. And when you have a page and you're running ads, there's a lot of open-ended fields and a lot of opportunities for people that interact with your page or ads to put their own comments and thoughts. And there's opportunities to share adverse events or serious adverse events, which is a major concern to uh, sponsors. So to combat those types of challenges, we really pay a lot of attention to monitoring all of our pages and ads. That's every comment. We structure very specific dialogues for people that are interested in communicating with us privately with respect to a trial or have questions about ads or about an investigational medication. So we really take all the steps necessary to ensure that the integrity of the social media communications happening is maintained and that sponsors are assured that we're doing right by them and that every piece of information that is shared either way in the communication process is documented, monitored, and reported correctly. So you'd mentioned that as part of your study, you had looked at mock ads and responses by the different patients. What did you learn there? Or is it so specific to the ads that we didn't learn anything in general? Yes. What some of the things we looked at in that A-B testing of selecting and looking at and selecting ad A versus ad B, some of them kind of jumped out at us so that they were kind of counter to what we would have assumed. For instance, what some of the axioms that we've worked under for digital marketing is don't use stock photography of doctors and shorter is better. Always go with a shorter copy. On that latter one, what, one of the interesting things we found is we put 
two clinical trial Facebook posts, one right next to each other. One was short and to the point in terms of what the trial was about and what it was looking for. The other one was longer, had more description about the nature of the study, the nature of the condition, and what would be included in the study. And our assumption going into that would be that people again, going on that axiom, shorter is better, that they would select the shorter one. But what we found, that was just not the case. Many more surveillance chose the one that had more information. We dug a little deeper. What we surmised was, yes, this is a very personal matter. It's a personal matter with their condition and a personal matter as it relates to participating in a trial. So it's a big endeavor. So they're going to need some more information than than perhaps a, a short Facebook post would warrant. And just to add upon what Matt was describing in our A-B ad testing, we also explored other areas. We looked at different types of stock photography with the same ad copy against each other. One of the interesting insights that we took out of the research was that patients identified much more and preferred images involving an individual that was experiencing some direct symptom. So symptom-related imagery. And we compared that to an image with a patient that, you know, appeared content, almost had an aspirational tone or feel, which is commonly seen in healthcare advertising, sort of, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, walking down the beach or, you know, playing with the kids at the park. So we found that it was much more relatable when there was symptom-related imagery. And even further, we then started looking at different types of stock photography versus illustrated imagery. And we had some really interesting results there. We found that illustrated imagery was always preferred over any form of stock photography that we presented it against. And that was really interesting because many programs are global in scope. With clinical trial recruitment programs, it could involve three countries, it could involve 25 countries. And most people that are recruiting global clinical trials can relate to sourcing stock photography of individuals within each country involved or region, because ultimately you want your imagery to be relatable to people. And what we found was that illustrated imagery actually performed way better. And the amount of creative control that you can leverage using illustrated imagery was really interesting. So you could pull in symptom-related aspects. You can include a physician in a practice setting. So there's a lot of areas of our research that sort of, you know, meshed well together and really presented a clear novel strategy and approach to creative development. And you talked to a large number of people, for over 430. Were they ex-U.S.? I think that's a really interesting finding that you could conceivably go cross-cultural if you use illustrations rather than stock images. And it certainly seems a lot easier in that sense because you don't have to keep finding new stock images. But is it true? In our research, all the participants lived in the United States. It was cross-cultural. However, we really wanted to focus on U.S. patients and two conditions that affected a wide demographic profile. So in epilepsy and migraine, there's patients in their 20s, there's patients in their 60s, and they respond to creative differently. That was really the scope that we kept our survey sample. That that does seem interesting and does seem applicable to the U.S., maybe to the rest of the world. I think jury's out there, sounds like. Matthew, final word. Where do you see that digital media and clinical trial recruiting is going next? That's an interesting question. 
Like I mentioned at the start of our discussion, there is just such deep targeting capabilities when it comes to audience profiling across many of the social media channels, probably Facebook in particular, LinkedIn to some degree, but for different reasons for business purposes, and the creative variability that you can get with these platforms as well. That's a lot of granular detail when it comes to targeting. Before that, there is a lot of granular profiling currently going on. Think of a patient journey map that we conduct and is conducted for sponsors. A lot of information is gleaned from that, which currently is used to inform traditional or otherwise digital media efforts to the degree and the limitation that they can target. What we'd like to see happen is with this level of detail that they're already getting and this level of detail that you can get out of a study like this, put all that granularity to work in a medium that can accept it. So that's where we think we can really start to shine. And when you start to supplement that information with new technologies like wearables, mobile devices, clinical trial participation from home, there's some startups that are looking into purely digital clinical trial participation. There's a lot of more information that will come as inputs, and those social media networks are there and ready to accept those level of inputs. Matthew Snodgrass and Michael Perlman, thanks so much for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk to a particular challenge that you have at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at sineoshealth.com. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com. We're consultants. That's what we do.